Welcome to The Conscious Entrepreneur. I'm your host, Alex Raymond. This is the only podcast that is 100% dedicated to the well-being of entrepreneurs. Now, I know that being an entrepreneur is a long journey and it can be really tough. So on this show, we won't be sharing generic hero stories or talking about mythical unicorns. Instead, we'll get straight to the heart of what matters most, giving you tools and resources to grow, thrive, and succeed as an entrepreneur. Every week, I'll be speaking with incredible founders, CEOs, coaches, and authors to help you be more resilient and inspired as you build the business of your dreams. Welcome back to the Conscious Entrepreneur Podcast. Today, we dive into the journey of Tracy Lawrence, a leader who really epitomizes the essence of conscious entrepreneurship. Her story, as you'll hear, is one of resilience, transformation, and the relentless pursuit of personal and professional growth. As the founder and former CEO of Choose, Tracy navigated all of the challenging waters of a startup, including fundraising, building the company, and ultimately deciding to sell it. Her journey is a powerful testament to the interplay of personal and professional life in the entrepreneurial world. In today's conversation, Tracy candidly discusses the struggles and the breakthroughs that she experienced, including navigating through some really rough personal and professional challenges. Her approach to mental fitness, mindfulness, and self-care as tools for recovery really offer valuable lessons to any entrepreneur. This episode is not just about the success and hurdles of startup life. It's really a narrative of personal transformation, which is why I like it so much. Tracy's story will inspire you to reflect on your practices. Uh, She's going to give you tools to push you beyond your limits and really to start to understand the profound impact of aligning your values with your work. I hope you enjoy this episode of the Conscious Entrepreneur Podcast. Hey, Tracy Lawrence, thanks so much for joining us on the Conscious Entrepreneur Podcast. You're so welcome. It's a treat to be here with someone who cares about this topic. Great. Super. Well, thanks. Hey, let's start with uh, let's start with your adventures and experiences. You were the mm-hmm. co-founder and CEO of Choose. Tell us uh, what that was like and uh, the at least give us the first part of your journey and then we'll get into other questions. Yeah, so Choose, I started when I was in college, and I never wanted to be an entrepreneur because my parents had run a company together, and I saw how much they fought, I saw how much it overtook their lives, and so I said, never, no, I'll never be an entrepreneur, and then of course, when I'm in college, I find that I'm always tinkering with ideas, and the big one that hit me was that um, my? it was based off my aunt who owned a restaurant in downtown LA and she was struggling to get business. And I knew of so many student organizations that were trying to order food and they would order from Subway. And I was like, there are so many higher quality local restaurants in downtown, you just don't know it. And I'm such a foodie, I'll show you. And so I just started to do these transactions I did a, I used an e-fax template and a Word document, and that was it. It was about $10 a month of startup costs, and I just started to transact orders between local restaurants and student organizations, and that basically was the startup uh, that became Choose, 
where we really came to focus on offices doing daily, weekly caterings for their employees to bring people together over group style meals. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot under that story, but that's the overview. Yeah. So, so tell us about the, uh, you know, one of the things we like to do at Conscious Entrepreneur is talk about the things that are, we don't necessarily see. So they're not on the surface. Um, you raised a, a bunch of money for this company. It grew to significant size. I'm sure there are plenty of ups and downs along the way. Uh, share some more color on that journey. You know, as it relates to conscious entrepreneurship, I think some of the most interesting parts of the journey were when I met my shadow. And I met the shadow and confronted the shadow a lot. And I, the shadow, which also by owning and taming the shadow would become a, the heart of the company. So one of the, the first experiences that started to show me that my personal life was very much alive in the business was when I went, uh, I was six months before raising my Series A, and I went to the mountains of Colorado with the Reboot team. And that's where Jerry Colonna and Khalid Halim and that whole crew, it was, it was them. And then it was 15 CEOs everywhere from pre-fundraising to exit and earnout. And it turns out that none of us were happy. And we all had very similar, eerily similar experiences um, from childhood. And one of those experiences for me was of being bullied. And so we're, we're talking about this experience of being bullied. And that's when Jerry sits down in front of me and says, what is it that your company does? And I started to connect the dots that I was bullied so badly. I used to eat lunch alone in the bathroom stall. And I built a company that was group format style catering because I wanted to make sure nobody ever ate alone. And I never Whoa. put those two together ever. And in that moment, I felt 30,000 volts of electricity go through my body. And it just, it felt like, wow, the personal, my personal past is here in the room. It's always been here in the room. And the real source of why I'm starting this company is actually deep love, deep love for myself, deep love and a desire for connection for anybody uh, that struggles with loneliness. And so we brought that, I brought that back from this retreat. And I came to the team and I said, oh, my God, love is at the heart of the company. My co-founder looks at me and goes, have you ever really looked at our logo? And I was like, hmm, let me take a look. I look at it and it, there's a heart in it. And it's oh. always had a heart in it. And it just it's one of those things. Right. And so shadow doesn't always have story. to be this, this bad, scary, negative thing. It was actually the shadow coming forth. And then once we once we called it its name, we. It, we became a love company and it was incredibly powerful. Yeah. Wow. That's uh, such a powerful story. So interesting to hear that and, and the experience of you meeting your shadow or really being forced uh, into extreme discomfort uh, and, and, and kind of, you know, then, and then seeing what happens, you know, I was on the uh, very first uh, retreat with Jerry Colonna here in, oh my in God. Boulder, Colorado. Back before it was even called uh, Reboot, it was called CEO Bootcamp back in the time. Right. And yeah, I still have great connections with with the oh, uh, with the folks who are who are on that. It's it's a really powerful uh, it's a really powerful thing. So you went through this retreat. You're you're meeting your shadow. You're uncovering kind of what it really means to be a 
CEO, right? So you're, you're, you're moving from entrepreneur mode into CEO mode. Okay. I'm mm. in this company. You just made the comment that this was a few months before you raised your series A. So fundraising was on the horizon. Um, how do you then kind of pick this up, move it into the front fundraise and then what happened? So after I came back from that, that was a real lesson in sort of bringing vulnerability into leadership. And I was 23 at the time. So I was also very primed and just, I was open. I was very open and I've always been an emotional creature. I never wanted to admit it, but I was. And so I think that kind of opened up my heart and we were, I remember this moment as we were preparing the fundraise and everybody knew our runway. We were also pretty transparent and we were within a few months of runway and we were just about to kick off the financing and I stood up in front of my, I remember actually earlier that day, my co-founder looks at me and he was very intuitive. And he says, he says, let's go for a walk. And we go outside and I sit on a stoop in Soma in San Francisco. And I just start sobbing my eyes out. And I, I said, I'm scared. It's like, I'm scared. What if, if, if I can't raise this money, uh, I'm so scared that I won't be able to work with this team. Like I love this team. And he looks at me and he goes, well, God, you should share that with the company. And I thought, no, 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 no. Leaders do not, we do not express fear. You know, we are always in control and we are always powerful. No fear. We're courageous. So I kind of brushed it off and he goes, fine. Uh, that afternoon we have an all hands. And I, I will tell you that it was by some spirit, something took me over because I had made no conscious decision that I was going to share that. But I was just taken over. And in the moment, I looked at the team and I told them, I said, I love working with you. And genuinely, I would be so devastated if we didn't raise this round and we didn't get a chance to work together. And there was not a dry eye in the room. And it was, I bet. Uh, it was a huge moment for my personal leadership philosophy being developed. And it also gave us this powerful cohesion that going into the financing, it wasn't a smooth sailing financing, um, but going into it, even though they were counting down the weeks to the end of runway, nobody left the company. And it was a very ride or die moment. And so we did end up raising um, and we raised from the Foundry Group, also based in Colorado. I, all of a sudden, I went from never having been to Colorado to spending a lot of time in Colorado with some of the me best people I've ever met. Um, and Foundry Group invested in us, which is its whole own story. And how did it feel to go from that meeting with your co-founder uh, to, to expressing your, your stress and sort of emotional state to, to him and then getting in up in front of the group? Even you, you said yourself, not aware that you were going to do it. What was your emotional state like? How did it feel to deliver that message and to be so open? In some ways, I was completely embodied and present. Um, and, and in some ways, it wasn't it was like I wasn't thinking. I was just speaking and something was speaking through me. That's honestly what it felt like. And it came out without any filter. And, you know, as, as CEOs, we oftentimes have to filter, right? There's, or it feels like, at least there's a story that we have that we have to filter. And in that moment, it was pure flow of emotion based in something that was very authentic, which was a deep care for my team and for the mission that we were working on. And so I would say it was emotionally charged, 
there were tears in my eyes, but it, and there was a sadness because that's part of the place I was speaking from, but there was also this deep like elevation and kind of a, like a pop of energy and, and almost like a, like a battle spirit. Like we all became warriors in that moment, ready to charge into battle together, but not from a place of revenge um, or anger, but from a place of love. I've not quite experienced that subtle uh, place of power that wasn't rooted in a chip on your shoulder or trying to prove something to someone. Yeah, sounds like amazing. Sounds like amazing teamwork. Actually, is 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 the word that's coming to mind for me when you talk about that. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, this is one of the things that I've learned as well. Is uh, we we all have these notions in our head of what we can and can't do as CEOs and entrepreneurs and so on and so forth. And when we challenge them and we and we open up a little bit or we share something we might not otherwise share. And we realize, oh, I didn't just get vaporized by the universe. Uh, I guess I can actually do this stuff, and and people respond in a certain way, you know. But but we carry this idea that like, oh, I couldn't possibly do that. Uh, so it's right. it's cool to hear you share that story. What was the what was the rest of the arc of the company like? And I'm using the past tense because I know that it was acquired. But what what was the rest of that uh, uh, those few years like? Hmm. Where do I begin? It was, I mean, we, we went into scaling mode. And so we ended up over the course of the company raising $40 million. We scaled to four markets. And I would say there were some key, some key points in there that I'll highlight or, or, or turning points. Um, six years in, my co-founder left the company. Okay. And I remember very, and, and my co-founder, I think he spiritually kind of reparented me. There was a huge, he was one of the first people in my life to say, it's okay to feel emotion. In fact, it's beautiful. He, he gave me such deep permission. And I think because of him, I was able to bring that emotion forth to the company and, and help use that as motivation for us and the team. So when he departed, it was like, it was like a mentor leaving. And I realized that he had become more than a mentor. I'd started to lean on him in ways that, that I began to tell myself the unhealthy story. I quit. I can't do this alone. I couldn't do this without him. And so that was a huge moment where I remember very distinctly, I led in all hands the, the, um, the Monday that he left. And I was scared of that Monday. And we had known for months that he was leaving. He transitioned, you know, but we get to that Monday and I stand up and I give my first all hands alone. And I learned two things. One is I'm not alone. I had my entire executive team who was incredible and the entire team. The team hadn't changed. I was just scared. Um, so this idea of alone was a very was a very kind of dramatized feeling in my head. And then the second thing that I learned was actually I need to take my seat and and stand up in my power as a leader. And that, yeah, it's going to be different. And it did feel different. Right to lose my co-founder, but also there was new life, and there were parts that I was that I leaned on him that I had to hold in myself, and it was a, a beautiful opportunity for me to show up um, and carry because people often said that he was like the feelings of the company, and so at times I could lean on him for that. I had to learn to trust myself for that, and that was a big leadership lesson. Uh, in the wake of him leaving. So that, that, that was a huge moment over the course of the next few years to, to learn to do that on my own. Yeah. On your own and, and, and step up and step up and, 
in that case, you're stepping up for for yourself, kind of going into the role. You're also modeling for the company what it's like to go through this transition, what it's like to be the the the, the you know the one who stays the CEO and lead in a way that they're looking for too. So, and it sounds like you, this is all fairly early on in your career. You're still young and learning this yeah. uh, the hard way, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I sold the company when I was 30. Okay. So this was my 20s, and it was a it was a it was a profound journey of me learning some of the basics that you might learn at your first few jobs. But I just I learned there. And for instance, I didn't take a weekend off. I didn't really take regular weekends off until seven years into the company. And the reason is that I fell in love. And I was engaged. And so I decided, wow, I'm going to set a boundary, a personal boundary with the company and not work weekends, which was incredible at that time. So that's when we raised our Series B. So we're scaling. Things are working really well with the company. I mean, as well as a startup can. Nothing was perfect. Um, and right after we raised the Series B, I um, my wedding was supposed to be that September or October. And a few weeks before the wedding, my fiance said, I can't do this. And he left and I never saw him again. Wow. And I, it broke my heart and my soul. And yeah. I, uh, I we, had ju- we had just raised the Series B. I mean, I really felt like I was on top of the world. And, uh, and when he left, I had to decide how I was going to tell people or if I was going to tell people. But of course, knowing me, mm-hmm. I had to tell people. There was no choice. Um, and so I remember getting up and just telling the team, listen, if you notice something is off with me, here is why. I do not want you making up stories about something's wrong with the company yeah. or financing fell through. I My engagement is broken. And I am going to be working at you know half power mode for an indefinite period of time. And so for three months, I kind of went into medium, low power mode. And I had to really, and and I think because I was able to tell the team so candidly, they stepped up to the plate in such incredible ways. And I'm, I'm really grateful for that time because they helped, they gave me the space to really recover my heart and my spirit. The the overlap in a in a startup between personal time and non person you know work time uh, is really blurry. And so when you're you know you've got a huge commitment raising a Series B and getting into scaling mode, you are in uh, you know wedding planning mode or at least have a certain direction that you think your life is going in. And then wham, major dislocation. And one of those uh, it'll set you back in in both areas of your life, both personal and and professional. So it sounds like you then had to go and kind of draw draw from the power inside you and 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 kind of sounds like retreat a little bit in order to to get your battery charged again. Yes, and this was also about the time that I started to understand the power of psychedelic therapy. Okay. Because it was those first kind of 6 to 9 months I felt like I had done I did a lot of healing and I did a lot of work to heal the grief, to fully grieve and process And I felt like I'd really healed and I'd done a good job with that. Um, About nine months, maybe a year later, I met my my next partner. And he um, he and I did an acid trip together. And 
in in this acid trip about three quarters of the way, you know, we're having fun, talking to trees, doing our thing. And then suddenly I feel this. Uh, I, I, I remember it was a very body feeling of kind of the dams opening up. And there was it was almost like there was a well. And at the bottom of the well in my torso, there was more grief about my about the wedding. And the grief came out and I realized that over the course of the following six months, I did more psychedelic therapy to really get through the rest of the grief that I had done the conscious level of processing. And there was so much subconscious processing that with the proper use of psychedelics, it took me in total about 15 months to properly recover my heart from that. And I'm so grateful that, um, you know, we can't all do this kind of healing alone. And I had incredible support to do that. So what was the support? How, how did that how did that work? There's a lot of people very interested in these modalities. Yes. Well, you know, um, fast forward to after I sold my company, I began to study and I, I now do psychedelic integration work. And so this what I find the kind of support that I needed was the um, the way that psychedelics helps you recognize that you're wearing glasses of a certain color and you don't even realize it. And so in the in the psychedelic world and in that that journey, what often happens is all of the defense systems, all your layers in parts work, what you might call the protectors, they all stand down. And you'll see them start to stand down in layers so that you can really see what your pure highest self kind of looks like looking out at the world. And you look at the world with all these layers of heaviness lifted off and go, oh, my God, this is what the world could look like. And that's what we call in the psychedelic world a peak state. It's a state of uh, oftentimes purity. Uh, And it it might not always be blissful. Sometimes a peak state might be, whoa, I am seeing the peak, the pure state of my pain without all the numbing agents that I've been putting on top of my pain. Um. And so I was able to see those peak states and recognize and hold myself with tenderness that, oof, I'm still grieving something that was extremely difficult. But in my own childhood and growing up, I was always taught, you know, cry and then wipe it off and you got to move on. And that's that's the way that I have always treated myself. Mm-hmm. And and I think it's also how I treated my team, too, until I started to really learn the profound depths of grief and the cycles of grief. And in fact, I'm wearing this stone, which is it's a beautiful fossil, actually. And it is it's all about spirals because we learn I, I forget and relearn about grief and the depths of grief <laughs> and the capacity for the human heart to be <laughs> broken uh, again and again. And And I think that that that's kind of the container that I've seen psychedelics offer. And there's definitely more that I can talk about that. Wow. Yeah, I know. I mean, that's a, those are a variety of, of powerful experiences that are lining up for you there. And I, I believe that one of the other experiences that you had along the way was, was burnout. Tell us about mm, that yeah. story. And, and I mean, I know that you've written a lot about it uh, publicly and talked about it, but you know, what was going on and how did all this start to manifest for you? Yeah, I'd say burnout for me, it wasn't as linear as like you start to approach burnout and all of a sudden you're there at the destination. Burnout for me came in cycles during different parts of my my journey until the end. And burnout was actually my intuition at the end telling me it was time to let go. So one of my first bouts of burnout, 
and, and a lot of my correlations with burnout were linked to financings with the company because sure. they were brutal. Right. Um, so I, I had a, uh, I, I had a financing cycle. This was after the seed round. It was kind of our seed plus round. And we had, I basically, it was an 11 month financing. It was so brutal. And in 11 months, we raised like $700,000. Like for that amount of time, we did not raise that much money. Right. And I, I remember distinct moments where I, I would get really close. So part of it was in my seed round, I had a major fallout with one of my lead investors. And that became sort of this undermining factor for my, my subsequent rounds until I met okay. Foundry. Okay. So in this extension round, I... I remember I spoke to this investor and he was super excited about us until he was supposed to meet us in person. And then at that last moment, he calls me up that morning and he says, we've spoken to your customers. They love your service. And uh, we see this opportunity, but unfortunately we can't invest because, and I was like, why? What? What's going <laughs> I, on? What? What yeah. happened? Yeah. And he says, he says, look, Looking at, at your team, we just don't believe um, this is a very hand to hand combat industry and we don't believe that you're out for blood. And so we just can't invest in that kind of DNA. And I, I just I, I collapsed and I really I remember just for the next day or two really questioning whether or not I should be in tech because uh, it was such brutal and odd feedback to hear especially because he hadn't met my team. And, you know, I can make up all these stories of why he said it. But at the core, actually, when I came out of it, I realized he was so right. I wasn't out for blood. I was out oh, for yeah? connection and love. <laughs> and and that actually fueled me way more than being out for blood and wanting to kill somebody. And so, um, but that was, you know, I started to see the impacts on my health. And I started to see myself lose a lot of steam motivation, energy. I was, I, I was crying all the time. I was in a, I wouldn't say a deep depression, but I was definitely in a mild depression at that point. And what had to happen was after every financing, I learned I needed to take a one to two week vacation. I needed to find some level of reset. And, um, and, and so that would be kind of my formula. I would find, I would take a step back, find my vacation, and then I would level up my executive team so that I wouldn't have to work with such crazy intensity um, and, and stop burning out. Towards the end of these burnout cycles, the final round of the cycle, it was actually my intuition called me to sit on the, I actually sat on the couch for about, I, I scheduled an hour, turned into four hours. I sit on the couch and I, I had two plans. And this was, we had just tried to raise our Series C and it had failed. I had a plan for us to take the company profitable, but cut it down to a very, very lean team or to sell. And I did not know what to do. At least I didn't think I knew. And my intuition drew me to go inward. And I sat with myself and I just talked out loud with myself. Okay. And wow. I realized in talking out loud to myself, first off, I spent a lot of time grieving the fact that I didn't do this more often. I didn't connect with myself. And and I hugged myself. I was like, I miss you. We should have these we, these chats more. We should go out to coffee, you know. 
<laughs> like, yeah. wow, you're you're pretty smart. Sure. This is cool. Like, we spend so much time externally. You know, we, we haven't been hanging out. And then when I sat there long enough, it became obvious to me that it was time to sell. And what I had to do was overcome the guilt of of selling and letting go. And that was a big part of what was, I think, at the core in the furnace of my burnout. It was it was burning me up alive. It was this knowledge that that I was done with this this decade journey of my life. And I felt like I was letting my team and my investors and my clients down. You were letting them down because of your decision to sell? Yes, that's that's what it felt like to me. Okay. And uh, what was that process like after you got up off that couch after being there for four hours? It was obvious, unfortunately. And I say unfortunately because I almost, uh, I almost, I think I was bringing on confusion because I didn't want that clarity because I didn't want to have to act on it because once I know I act. And so from there, it was a process of going back to my team and sharing with them transparently that it was time for us to find a new home for the company. And there was a lot of anxiety. There was some excitement. People, Some people really wanted to see what a sale process was like. But there was, of course, deep anxiety about what would happen. Would we even sell? And over the course of the next, I think we had four or five months to sell the company. And that was in 2019, December. And in 2020, we all know what happened. (laughs) We all know what happens. It was, and we had the deal signed. And all of a sudden I start coming into work and every day our clients start dropping like flies because they're shuttering their offices and canceling their caterings. And our buyers calling me up going, what's happening? What's happening? Mm -hmm. And we're like, we're hemorrhaging. And at one point he completely pulls out of the deal. And I have to call him. I'm walking around Lake Merritt in Oakland and I call him and I say, what price would you do this deal at? It was horrible. We resuscitate the deal for a fraction of the price. The Oof. team, we had already decided the team that was going to be hired. We had to lay off everybody because they couldn't hire anybody. Oh. And the deal limped across the finish line. And we had to do a you know, a very last minute round of layoffs. And it was And then at the end, you know, we sold. I couldn't even hug my team goodbye. It was just this quiet, devastating ending to something that would already have been, I think, a hard ending. It was extremely hard. It was an extremely brutal way to end. And that's when I left San Francisco and moved to Honolulu, which is where I currently live. Block your calendars for June 4th and 5th for the 2024 Conscious Entrepreneur Summit. Coming back to Boulder, Colorado, and now in its third year, the Conscious Entrepreneur Summit is the only in-person event that is 100% dedicated to the well-being of entrepreneurs. This is not your normal startup or leadership conference. We won't be talking about how to build a business plan, how to market or sell your product, or how to raise money. We also won't be talking about Bitcoin or AI. What we will talk about, though, are topics that are absolutely critical for you along your journey as an entrepreneur. Things like overcoming imposter syndrome, avoiding burnout, building resilience, and taking responsibility in your life. It's going to be a fantastic two days, and I would love for you to join us in June. 
Check out our website, which is consciousentrepreneur.us for more information. Wow. Uh, that's, that's a really, uh, an emotional story. I can, I, I can, I can only imagine what that journey was like. I mean, I, there's multiple things that I'm hearing there. So there's, uh, you know, this is your, this is your first thing out of college, started in college, uh, learning on the job, uh, tons of responsibility put at your feet. You're out there doing all the entrepreneur stuff, running around, uh, like crazy and going through these trials, these trials, which include your co-founder leaving and like just the agony of, of fundraising. And, and that's the word for it is agony. And yeah. <laughs> you're, and you're in one of these businesses where, uh, you know, you're expected to raise and then raise again in 18 months and then do it again in 24 months. And like, it's, it's a, it's a path. Yes. Right? So you're on a path and you're getting feedback from people. Uh, are you, are you really out for blood? Are you tough enough? Which by the way, these war mentality and these war like phrasings and military stuff that people come up with, it's, it's, it's crazy. It's very unfortunate. Uh, but you know, so then people are judging you and say, well, you're not, you know, you don't, you don't have ice in your veins uh, and so right. on. And you're doing all that. And then when you finally uh, get through your own journey of burnout to recognize that you need to change direction and find a, a a different home for the for the company then covid hits and all your customers start going <laughs> going out of business and uh and and yeah i can i can imagine that this was just like a tremendously disruptive disorienting disjointed uh time in in life so so then you're like all right fuck this i'm leaving i'm going to, <laughs> i'm going to hawaii <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting because, you know, you're, you're talking, having raised a lot of money, serious investors, ton of stuff on your shoulders. And uh, it's amazing to see these, these journeys and I love highlighting it. And thanks again for, for sharing. So, so you, so you, you, I mean, is that rock bottom for you? Like deciding <laughs> that, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to up and leave or like, then you bounce back up and, and then what happened? You know, I wish I could say it was. And I think this is where my journey of burnout continued. So a year, so I, I moved to Hawaii and um, and I kind of re, you know, I, I study psychedelics. I begin coaching because I love, I still love this work, but I need a healthy distance from actually being in the CEO seat. And come 2021, um, I get, COVID. And by the end of, and I was actually fine, but it was OG COVID before the vaccines. And then um, I got, I get my two, you know, when, when that was the time we were getting our two vaccines over the course of the year and I get my booster. And two weeks after the booster, my body starts to feel very wrong and very oh, weird. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I, I start to struggle getting up from the couch and that, I'm not a couch person. I, I'm, I surf, I'm active, I work out almost every day. I start to feel really dizzy. Um, just sitting down, I'm very dizzy. Uh, my vision starts to blur. And it kicks off, and I, I, I go to doctors. I start getting, I spend thousands of dollars on blood tests and uh, various tests, and nothing's wrong with me on paper. But everything is wrong with me. Um, it gets to a point where I am bedridden. I can't even sit up to make tea. I have to have a stool at my in my kitchen. 
and I can't cook anymore. I can't walk my dog. Um, and there's, and I, at one point I thought I was going to die. And, um, eventually what starts to surface is that me and millions of other people are being afflicted with what's called long COVID. Yeah. And it is, some people get it from the, from COVID itself. Um, I believe that I got it as a vaccine injury. And I also believe that what paved the way for this was that I had had years of stress accumulated in my system and I had never fully learned. I was on the path to doing it, but I never fully discharged that stress from my system. So when COVID hit me, it hit an already weakened system. And so in many ways, it was a debt that was quietly accumulating and the loan sharks had come back and I had to pay down that debt in a way that took about two years and that I am coming out of um, now, but I'm still left with a tinnitus. So a ringing in my ears and a, and a dizziness um, that I just, I have to monitor, but luckily most of my fatigue is gone and I've learned to manage these other symptoms. But I, I, that was rock bottom and it was, my spirit, the beginning of really a deep spiritual practice, because there is no spiritual practice like being deathly ill and coming to terms yeah. with the fact that you may not wake up the next day. Um, and that really launched me from as I become a coach to also being a healer coach and recognizing that in this journey of building a company, we have the background journey of our health and our bodies and our shame and our grief and our guilt. And that those two journeys have to be one and you have to address both in order to see success in either path and both paths, ideally. And so what are the types of things that uh, that you you're advising on now as it relates to uh, those what you're were, what were talking about, the kind of the healing, the healing coach stuff and and energy and so on? Like where, where does someone start if they if they want to do something here? What are the most powerful uh, modalities or the first steps to take? One of the most powerful, so I'll start sober and then we can move more psychedelic and radical, but the, the best sober modalities that I know, the first one is somatic therapy or somatic coaching and somatic is, uh, is a body-based therapy. And I had no idea what this was when I, after I sold my company, I took a meditation course for about a Uh year. And in that course, I would sit for 20 or 30 minutes in meditation and I would hit this wall in my stomach. And it was a physical wall, but it was also emotional and mental. And this wall felt like it was it felt like nausea. It felt like pain. And it made me want to cry and to scream. And I couldn't there were no thoughts associated with this bundle. And I told my my meditation instructor. And he said, Oh, that's trauma in the body. And you should try talking to a somatic therapist. And I went on this journey with this modality called somatic experiencing. And the book I would recommend for people that are interested in this is called waking the tiger by Peter Levine. And waking the tiger. All right. mm -hmm. And basically the, the whole, the, a condensed form of this modality is, that if you look at animals in the animal kingdom that nearly get chased down by a lion, they don't get traumatized. But humans get in a car accident and we can hold that trauma for life. What's the difference? The animal, they have footage of this. 
barely outruns the lion on the savannah. And what they do is they go back to the herd and they shake. Yeah. They take all that fight or flight energy and they release the tension pattern. And 20 minutes later, they're back to normal. Humans right. get into a near car accident and we tense. We hold. Mm-hmm. We hold it mm-hmm. in our necks. We get whiplash. And, and eventually you do that long enough and you start to create imbalance in your body and stress hormones in your body. And so somatic experiencing, it's still a, a talk modality, but where I saw talk therapy plateau for me, somatic experiencing allowed me to go deeper and start to release these trauma patterns and these tension patterns. So that's the first one. The second one is um, internal family systems or parts work. And that yeah. is that that was created by Richard Schwartz. The book I would recommend there is No Bad Parts. And it is something that you any it's made for anybody, practitioner or average Joe, to pick up the book and to be able to implement immediately. And it is it's the idea that we have these various parts in us that have personalities, desires, wants, and needs, and that we can talk to and that we've often thrown out because they're too scary and that we need to integrate and bring back in. The third modality that I recommend if you really need to go deeper and those two are not enough is psychedelics. And that's, as I expressed, being able to use plant medicine or otherwise to be able to create kind of clean out the monk temporarily so you can see what your peak experience looks like. And then when you come back off that experience in sober space, integrating the lessons of that peak experience into your day to day life, which is why they often call it psychedelic integration. And funny enough, those modalities, all three of those I listed, work together extremely beautifully and naturally. Okay, so the somatic, the parts work, and the psychedelics is a is a complete package as far as you're concerned. It, yes, yes. And you don't have to do the psychedelics. I see people do incredible work with somatic plus parts work. Um, mm-hmm. and, and if psychedelics calls to you and you're not on SSRIs, and you're not dealing with any major mental health um, disorders like schizophrenia or bipolar, then I would say adding psychedelics on um, could be that extra factor for you. But it's not for everybody. I also know, Tracy, that you're a fan of Dr. Joe Dispenza. I've done a lot of his work, yeah. too. I, uh, My wife and I have been to, I believe it's four different ah. uh, retreats, several week-longs, and, and uh, the advanced ones as well, uh, going back to 2019. Uh, and I, I find them amazing. I really inspiring. I've done some of the greatest meditations of my life, uh, with, Ugh. you know, with him and his, his community. Uh, what's your experience been? My favorite parts. So I, I might take you in a, in a path with Joe Dispenza that you may not have explored a lot, but for me was really fascinating. And it was the heart coherence, the heart brain coherence pieces of it. And, and okay. really because I ran a love company. Right. And I've I've actually been fascinated by this question of what is love and what is the power of the heart? I know there's power to it. We all talk about I love you. What is, you know, like we act like we know what love is. But my God, do we really understand it? And so heart coherence, when you when you look under the hood of heart coherence, it's actually a state. It's a it's a scientifically studied state where your heart rate variability your respiration rate and your blood pressure rhythms all sync up at the same time. And you can do this 
So, so it's actually like a scientifically verified state. You know, this isn't just some hippy dippy thing. And yeah. it's associated when you get into a heart coherent state, it's associated with immune benefits, cardiovascular benefits and cognitive benefits as well. Blood flows easier to your prefrontal cortex. You make better decisions. And so that's individual heart coherence. And then there's social heart coherence. And they have research that shows that if you and I got coherent in a room together and then we we let a third person in the room that knows nothing about what we're doing and they're wearing a heart monitor halter, they'll go into coherence automatically. And that social coherence creates improved cooperation and team dynamics. So it's it's this beautiful thing that has multiple layers. And then the third layer is global coherence. And they show that when you are in an individual mm. state of heart coherence, your frequency matches 0.1 hertz matches the frequency of the Earth's electromagnetic waves. This is no coincidence, they don't believe. Um, and they believe all in, in, these, in this coherence that we're exchanging information with each other that can be measured outside the body about three feet in your magnetic field by magnetometers. And the mm -hmm. only reason that it's three feet and not more is because that's the limitation of the equipment that we have built to date. So... It could be that our magnetic field of our hearts go into infinite space, right? So there's all this power. We're just scratching the surface of this. And, of course, what's so interesting is the Buddhists have, like, they're, like, sitting there for thousands of years. They're, like, we've known this all along. We got this. You know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they're, they're like, yeah, nice. That's very sweet, young ones. You know, but the, but the neuroscientists are getting excited because how do you get into a state of heart coherence? You have loving, compassionate grateful thoughts. It's so simple in many ways. And so I, that, that's actually been the part um, next to, of course, kind of the manifestation parts and the positive thinking. But that's been the part that's been really interesting, which is if the brain thinks, the heart knows. And how do we get in a very brain-centered world? And that's one of my theses working, especially with tech entrepreneurs. How do we get our very brain-head-centered people into their hearts and into their bodies, where there's so much extra intelligence there. And there are 40,000 sensory neurites or brain neurons in our hearts. They call it the little brain for a reason. Yeah, it has its own yeah. complex nervous system. And so I love just trying to get people that are so smart. I mean, I can't big brain these people in session. They're too smart for me. But drop into the body and they're like, they're like babies. They're like, this is an entirely new world. I've never helped, uh, felt my heartbeat before. And that's where magic starts to really happen. And so let's think about gratitude here for a second that you just, you just mentioned. So gratitude sort of opens up this idea that uh, great things have already happened. And, mm. uh, you know, I'm, I'm appreciative. But, but if, if I think about the life of a normal, of, a, of an entrepreneur, at least the ones, many of, the, many of whom I know, uh, yeah. it's like constantly up and down and, uh, you know, even just listening to the story that you just shared about your journey and your financings and the burnout and the, this, that, and the other, uh, how do I actually tap into gratitude when I feel like it's just shit raining down around me? <laughs> Such a good question. It's like, it's like easy to say, but what do I actually do? I know. I know. So... One of the key ingredients that 
most entrepreneurs fail to build into their systems is space, is some level of space. And to me, that looks like, you know, some entrepreneurs build in their calendars where their mornings are for them and their afternoons are for their teams. Um, others might build it in for, you know, a, a half day. Um, some do it in the morning with morning rituals like meditation. But I, I think having a little bit of spaciousness is one of the keys so that you're not swimming in it. But honestly, sometimes it's sometimes it's not about accessing gratitude. And sometimes I wouldn't advise that. I think sometimes it's triggering, you know, to ask, tell an entrepreneur, what's one thing you're grateful for? And they look at you and they're like, F you. <laughs> F you. I don't want to, I don't want this Buddhist bullshit. Right. And, and, and you know what? They're totally right. When I was in those States or when I get in those States, I don't want to talk about gratitude. It feels forced. So actually mm. we go counterintuitive and we say, let's be with whatever is here right now. So okay. one example that uh, is numbness. This is a one that I've been working with recently as I heal my physical ailments. My body is kind of numb and my heart was kind of frozen and I'm trying to unthaw. And here I am and I'm like, and, and I hear this from founders that get burnt out. They're like, God, I just feel like I don't care. I must be the worst CEO in the world, but I'm just so burnt out. I'm fried. I don't care. I just want to go home and watch Netflix. And so they have numbness. And then they resist the numbness, right? And then they're stuck again. So what we do is we say, okay, let's just be with the numbness and sit with the numbness and honor it and thank it and not ask it to change at all. And Thomas Hubel, who is this amazing teacher, he talks about the, in order to be present with any negative emotion that you have, mm -hmm. you have to love it. For what it is. Think about a person. To love someone, you have to truly accept what they are in this moment, not what they could be. And it's the same for a negative emotion. You have to love the numbness for what it is. It's protecting you. It protected you from some nasty, nasty feels underneath. And so what I instruct founders to do is not try to be grateful. I want them to be attuned and present to whatever the experience is and love and thank every single demon that's coming up. Because Rilke says our dragons may actually be princesses in disguise. And all we have to do is kiss our dragons and they may become the princesses that they hope to be. That is it. Whatever is here is here to serve you. Sit with it. Stop trying to resist it. Stop trying to be the most motivated or the most grateful. Forget that. Just sit with what's actually here and honor it. And then eventually you'll notice, ironically, in accepting what's here, it'll start to melt or it'll start to shift. So don't force it. Don't happy face it. Don't go into a place of, oh, I have this tool. I'm going to put this tool to use, et cetera. Uh, instead, observe, accept, allow, start from there. And trust. Yeah, trust it. It's, ha it's hard. And when I've done that and I'll sit. And I'll thank my numbness. And when I thank it and honor it, and then if I if I have capacity, I'll be like, I thank you and I don't need you, but thank you. And then it'll start to melt. And you know what? Nasty feelings come up, anxiety, grief, and you better be prepared for those feelings. And if you're not, then thank the numbness and tell it, thank you. Let's keep, let's stay here because I don't have capacity and I don't want my founders to feel everything, right? They, they may not be in that place. And that's okay. 
Yeah, great. This is a, is really uh, interesting to consider all these things that go into the into the journey. It's really not uh, just what you see on the surface. There's so much. There's so much below the surface, isn't there, Tracy? Well, as we start to as we start to wrap up this conversation, there's a few things I'd love to ask, which I try to ask everyone who appears on the podcast. Uh, the first is, do you have a definition of a conscious entrepreneur that you can share with us? Mm-hmm. It's the entrepreneurs who believe that their personal work will elevate their professional work and, and know that and take responsibility for their personal work and for their shadow and their light. Yeah, great, super. Uh, I like that one. I like that one uh, a lot. Tell us about your personal practices. You've been through a lot of different experiences uh, as as an entrepreneur here and now as a as a coach. But what what do your practices look like? Mindfulness, meditation, uh, connection, nature, therapy, exercise. What do you do? My most important ones: surfing is number one. Um, I'm an avid surfer, lifelong. And I surf outside of this beautiful crater called Diamond Head here in Honolulu. And it's the opportunity for me to look out on my surf break, look at this beautiful hillside and the palm trees and just feel something like awe and presence and wonder that, you know, I, I, that is difficult for me to get anywhere else. And it is also, so that that's in the calm waters. And then I also like big wave surfing. That to me is a spiritual practice because you're sitting there and you see a wave come at you that is the, the height of a building, you know, and maybe for me, it's the height of a one story building. I'm not doing like, you know, big buildings. Right. But it's a big wave. And there is something in you that quickens your pulse and makes me so alive. So surfing is a practice um, uh, there. I live right next to a park and these beautiful monkey pod trees that have like these soft kind of filtered light. I talk to them and I'm sober, mind you, most of the time when I'm talking to them <laughs> and they, they always have one message for me and their message is everything's going to be okay. We've seen it all. Everything's going to be okay. So nature in that way is, is such a practice. And then the third most important thing is I have a 20 minute meditation slot every day and I figure out depending on my state which teacher I'm going to use to fill that slot in. So right now, my, so my last teacher was Joe Dispenza. And he was my, my morning mm-hmm. slot. Currently, based on some of the childhood parts work I'm doing, Tara Brock is my teacher. But I keep that slot. It just rotates depending on what I need to hear or be with in that moment. Cool. Great. So, so those are, those are meaningful experiences, surfing, being in nature and, uh, and the meditation. What about um, resources and books? We've heard uh, Rainer Maria Rilke from you. We've heard uh, Dick Schwartz. We've heard whole whole number of ones. What uh, what are the resources that you most like to share? Um, Tara Brock's videos on YouTube, particularly her video on letting go, is speaking to me a lot right now. Thomas Hubel. His last name is H-U-B-L. He's been putting out some incredible uh, content around attunement. And just his way, like hearing him talk, I just feel so so regulated. It's really beautiful. Um, Dick Schwartz and No Bad Parts. And then Peter Levine. Peter Levine, the inventor of somatic experiencing, he has 
some mythical ways of sort of speaking to your body and, um, and, and discussing trauma release. So those are some of my, my favorite teachers. Awesome. Uh, great. Super. Anything else you want to share? I would say I want to share actually something about mindfulness that I've learned and acceptance. I, you know, I actually forgot that I even care about mindfulness. I, it's something that, you know, when you learn something so deeply, you kind of forget what other people call it. And you forget that it's its own kind of practice and study. That's <laughs> okay, what mindfulness uh-huh, uh-huh. is for me. So I, I uh, one of the, and I realize I've been studying it for for a decade, over a decade. And one of the stories that sticks with me that I'd like to share with people, especially if they're in the seat where they are embarking on mindfulness or they've had a practice for years, and it's the story of the person who is looking out over the street, and the street is full of these massive holes. And they keep, they, they go through the street and they keep falling in these holes. And they're at the bottom of the hole going, my God, I'm falling in these holes. Well, how did I just fall in this hole? I didn't even think about it, right? I just fell. You know, they start to meditate, they come back up and they start to notice, wow, I can count the holes now. I see the holes. And then they walk and they fall in the holes again. And they spend 10 years seeing the holes, studying the holes, and falling in the holes. Until finally one day, they get a glimmer of walking and completely walking around the holes. And then the next day they come back again and they fall in the holes. And to me, that is a story that (laughs) resonates so deeply because I think you can spend your entire life, you know, you get to this next phase of meditation where it's like, wow, I finally see my patterns and my rhythms. Thank you. Thank you. And then you get stuck in them and suck in them again. And I think the more that we can, again, stay with those holes and be present to the fact that we're in the hole, love ourselves, accept that there's some lesson still here, which is why we're in the hole, the easier it will be for us to navigate and finally find the kind of peace and reduction of suffering. And I, I want for everybody to relieve as much of their suffering they can in this life. Fantastic. I, I really appreciate that, uh, that story there. Well, Tracy, thanks for coming on. Thank you for sharing your journey and being so open about it. it it's amazing to see what goes on behind the scenes, what goes on underneath the surface. And I really appreciate your openness and vulnerability. Thanks so much for joining us on The Conscious Entrepreneur. You're so welcome. Thank you for having this space. It was beautiful. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Conscious Entrepreneur. If you're ready to go deeper into working on yourself, check out the upcoming events, articles, and resources on our website, which is ConsciousEntrepreneur.us. I'd also really like to thank the team at Hivecast for producing this episode. If you run a podcast and are looking for an awesome full-service production company, make sure to check out Hivecast.